I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. Today is Tuesday, June 19th, 2012. Coming up, the co-author of a book of a new book reveals the key to happiness. And it's not necessarily about sex. And we learn how relatively small black holes can have a big effect on their gigantic host galaxies. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. After four years of squinting over a wealth of space imagery, CU researchers from the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics have finished a no-doubt tedious task. The researchers have counted, outlined, and cataloged impact craters on Mars, 635,000 of them. The new database is the largest single database of impacts on a planet or moon in the solar system. The researchers say the database will help address a number of questions about the red planet, including surface ages, the history of volcanism, and the habitability of the planet, as well as helping NASA plan future missions. For more information and a view into the database, check out lasp.colorado.edu. That's lasp.colorado.edu. And by the way, it is worth going to see their graphic of a spinning Mars. What did schoolchildren and mosquitoes share in common? They love summer and pools of water, which also means that we're all at higher risk of contracting the West Nile virus. In fact, the West Nile virus is endemic in every state in the lower 48, except Maine. In 2003, the worst year yet for Colorado, nearly 3,000 human cases were reported in the state, and 63 people died from the disease. The dengue virus has also reared its ugly head in the U.S., especially in southern Florida and Hawaii over the last few years. Worldwide, as many as 50 million dengue infections occur each year, causing up to 30,000 deaths. West Nile and dengue fever are both pathogens that can be transferred from an insect to a human. The virus has plagued two out of every three people on the planet. And no clinically useful antiviral drugs are available yet. But researchers at Colorado State University and the University of Northern Colorado are developing a drug that can stop West Nile virus, as well as dengue and yellow fever viruses, from rec- replicating. In essence, the drug binds to a protein critical for viral replication, and then it blocks the protein from functioning. Brian Geis, a professor of microbiology, immunology, and pathology at CSU, and Susan Keenan, a professor of biological sciences at UNC, co-authored the study. It will be published soon in the journal Virology. A CU team has been awarded a $40,000 NASA grant to begin developing robots that will help with gardening in space. These space gardens will serve a variety of functions in self-sustaining space habitats, explains one of the team's core members, aerospace PhD student Christine Fenshang. It could scrub for carbon dioxide, um, it can provide oxygen, and of course it provides uh, food as well. The system will plant seeds, monitor and encourage plant growth, harvest, and recycle nutrients. To perform all those functions, the team has imagined a robotic arm that will glide over a biodigester and growth containers, using each of its specialized tools to push, cut, and grab. Farmers back at Mission Control will keep an eye on things with a camera and a 3D laser scanner mounted on the robotic arm. And, of course, a lot of software will have to be designed and built by the students as well. The process of executing the project will prepare the students for more sophisticated efforts later in their careers. 
Learn more at www.spacegrant.org slash XHAB. Thanks to How on Earth's Jim Pullen for that story. Now for adult science. No, that's not rated X, but it is for those 21 and older, since it involves cocktails. This Thursday night, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science will host its monthly science lounge from 6.30 to 9.30. You'll learn about the science behind the fantastic feats and intense illusions that make up your favorite carnival memories. Live music by Ian Cook will accompany a science slideshow. The event costs $8 for museum members and $10 for non-members. The museum is at 2001 Colorado Boulevard. For more info, go to dmns.org. Here comes the You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. You may think the key to happiness lies in love, winning the lottery, or more vacation days, but what it really comes down to is math, a mathematical formula to be precise. At least that's according to a recently published book. It's called Engineering Happiness, A New Approach for Building a Joyful Life. It's written by two business and economics professors, Manel Balcells from the University of Pampao Fabra in Barcelona, and Rakesh Sharon from the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Sarin's on the phone from California to share some of their and others' findings in the fields of behavioral and social sciences. Rakesh, welcome to How on Earth. Happy to be with you, Susan. So I'm curious, you're two business and economics professors. What brought you to this field of happiness? Yes, so uh, we uh, have been looking at uh, questions of uh, how should people choose uh, one business plan over the other or investment plan uh, over the other. And then we got to thinking that people choose A over B because presumably A will make them happier uh, than B. And so over the past 10 years, Susan, we have examined and analyzed data and evidence from all over the world uh, to come up with a set of laws that govern our happiness. So and, mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Uh, Yeah. So the thing is that, yes, our background and culture make us see uh, things differently, make us perceive things differently. But the laws of happiness uh, are universal and they apply to uh, everyone. (laughs) So before we get into the laws, I need to ask you, are you a happier man after researching and writing your book? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) because I practiced on... uh, uh, some of the things. Basic idea is frankly very simple. Uh, these equations give uh, why certain things happen, uh, but the basic idea is to uh, to uh, Im- um, uh, improve your positive emotional states and reduce the negatives. <laughs> so it- we call it happiness seismogram, and we measure happiness much like energy is measured by calories. Uh, we measure it uh, by happy dawns. So yes, when I notice that certain activities, uh, such as uh, getting stuck in traffic in Los Angeles, uh, uh, makes road my rage happy heaven. Go down. <laughs> so I'm curious. Um, you say the secret lies in this math formula. Lay it out for us. So, so the thing is this: the one logical implication of these laws is that happiness equals reality minus shifting expectations. So as we try to improve our reality by working harder so we can make more money, buy a bigger house, or drive a fancier car, our expectations also shift. 
So we are happy for a little while, but soon enough, expectations catch up with reality. So this is why it is no wonder that uh, researchers have found that American millionaires living in mega mansions are barely happier uh, than Maasai warriors of Kenya who live in huts. So we have to seek happiness elsewhere. Uh, now, now, one implication of this equation will be that in our life we follow what we call a crescendo strategy, less to more. Crescendo strategy. Yes, because, you see, you want a gap between reality and expectation, because happiness is relative. Uh, so this strategy, okay, let's talk about summer is coming, people may be going on vacation. On a small scale, we could say that on a vacation, rather than immediately visiting the most spectacular museum or historic site, save those experiences for the end of your trip. But it's more than vacation. As a philosophy of life, you can work to organize the chapters in your book of life from less to more. So in raising children, for example, do not give them too much too fast, right? Because otherwise expectations will go up too high and it's hard to keep up with that. So once you get the idea, you begin to see the applications everywhere. Now, similarly, we talk about basic goods. And the idea there is simple. So you talk about basic goods? basic goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example will be, let's say, food. You know, you eat uh, when you, whenever you are hungry each day, you enjoy your meal. So the idea there is, again, think about the equation, reality minus shifting expectations. For these basic goods, our expectations do not shift, and they are also not susceptible to social comparisons because our expectation in modern society with all the advertisements and everything around us uh, is formed often uh, through uh, all the messages we keep getting. Uh, so uh, what happens in basic goods, we divided them in three categories, the needs of the body, which is uh, basically food, health, uh, uh, shelter, uh, sleep, right. uh, and needs of the heart and the needs of the mind. And these are the things like spending time uh, with people you love, your friends and family, uh, listening to music you you like kind of things. Things that don't that, necessarily cost much. They, they don't cost much, and they give you uh, happiness consistently, right? So the thing is, it is not about that equation. I, we do not mean that you plug it in and you will be happier, but it gives you, begins to open up many ideas when you look at the equation, which is supported by, you know, data from all over the world uh, that ah, I can now uh, make choices uh, that will uh, ha- that will bring me a happier life. So, so I want to stop and you for a sec. Just the crescendo strategy. It sounds kind of axiomatic. What our parents have told us probably since we were quite young. <laughs> right, you know, right, don't right. go for the ice cream no, now. Hold off. Yes, but this right, is a science right, show, right. after all. Tell me, what's the evidence for that being more successful in terms of bringing you more happiness in the end? Okay. So the crescendo strategy, frankly, uh, is, in our terms, is a theorem (laughs) in the sense that if you maximize the happiness, which is the equation I gave you, uh, this is what the optimal plan turns out to be. Now, what is the evidence? You know, we have done some small experiments and we have found, uh, I was giving you a vacation example, uh, say, for example, in uh, Croatia, there are two uh, monasteries, uh, uh, Krika and Plitvich. Two monasteries? Krika and Plitvis, <laughs> and, and, and people who go from less to more, Krika to Plitvis, enjoy more 
and those who go in the opposite direction because of their schedule or whatever, they, of course, enjoy the plit the most amazing one. But when it comes to cricket, they will say, oh, it's just so-so because their expectations have uh, have gone up. So, uh, so you know, empirical uh, support is there. Uh, but uh, as I said, the, Im- the empirical support and scientific experiments and the data, we really uh, look at to support the laws. And from the laws comes out certain uh, certain findings, and one finding is the crescendo uh, strategy in life. You see, actually, uh, some organizations are already doing it. For example, uh, for call centers or service employees, if you give people more frequent promotions, ah. of course, associated with achieving some well-defined milestone or goal, that will improve uh, employee satisfaction uh, because that's a crescendo strategy and few organizations are beginning to do that <laughs> uh, so so there is a support uh, that this strategy uh, works so some would say and i know there have been gazillion books written about uh happiness over the centuries dalai lama not the least of them um but isn't happiness itself kind of overrated I know some would say in the Buddhists, and I mean, you're from the Hindu tradition, that it's more about waking up and being present. And some of this sounds like you're getting to that anyway. But why, why should we have such focus on happiness? Right. So because, you know, happy people tend to be healthier, they live longer, and they have better social relationships, and happy employees are more productive. But nevertheless, I'll agree with you, happiness is not the only goal. But the thing is, you could have a meaningful life, but it can it can be also a happier happier life, and we have to understand that in our definition, happiness is not some um, few amazing moments in life, and those are okay. We are not against those, but happiness is having a stable. Uh, stable, uh, peaceful, content life, because that is how you will maximize area under the curve. You see? So the a stable, content life, not just uh, binging at the moment. Well, right. we've got to close it at that. I so appreciate you coming on the show. That was Rakesh Seren, co-author of the book, Engineering Happiness, A New Approach for Building a Joyful Life. Thanks so much. Thank you, Susan. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bartell. Active galactic nuclei, or AGNs for short, are vast black holes at the centers of galaxies. And by vast, we mean gigantic, as in the mass of a million suns, or even as many as 10 billion suns. Never mind that all that mass is crammed into a volume smaller than our solar system. But even such mighty entities pale against the galaxies they lie within. With as many as 10,000 billion suns, surely galaxies hardly notice these space and time bending singularities in their tummies. Regardless, the AGNs do seem to hold sway over their galaxies. CU Boulder astronomer Jason Glenn is part of an international team that is beginning to sort out why. He recently chatted with KGNU's Jim Pullen. Let's listen in. We need to understand how it is that galaxies like the Milky Way got here. We know what the Milky Way looks like now, but we know that the universe, when it was very young, was quite different from that. The question is, how did galaxies form from a homogeneous universe of hot plasma? So now we have galaxies, we have stars, we have planets, and people have evolved. It's a very fundamental question. But... The theoretical understanding of how galaxies form is not mature at all. We have some of the basics right, but many of the details are missing and they're quite important. One piece of this 
is that we now know that apparently all massive galaxies have supermassive black holes at their centers. And the number of stars in the galaxies, or at least in their centers, seems to be correlated to the size of that supermassive black hole. Supermassive black hole may sound large, but it's very small compared to the size of a galaxy. What one would call the radius of a black hole for a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy is sort of the size of the inner solar system. So it's tiny. Galaxies are many, many times larger than that. How can it be that what happens on the scale, the size scale of a supermassive black hole, or say the solar system, could be correlated to what's happening on the galaxy on the scale of the galaxy? It's a big question. Since the, the correlation between the mass of the supermassive black holes and the number of stars was observed, theoreticians have put forth a number of theories to test it. None of them have been able to be ruled out very successfully yet because the observations are difficult. However, our observations provide some of the first direct evidence that it's possible for the supermassive black holes to limit the growth of stars in the galaxies and produce the observed correlation. What our finding was, was that galaxies that had the most active nuclei, the most accretion onto the supermassive black hole, or the fastest growth of the supermassive black hole, seemed to have lower rates of star formation than galaxies that had smaller black holes. So we identified galaxies in which there were active nuclei, there were supermassive black holes from their X-ray emission. And then we used our new observations from the Herschel Space Observatory to figure out what the star formation rates were in those galaxies. What we found is that the star formation rates on average for the galaxies that did not have bright active nuclei was about 215 solar masses worth of interstellar gas per year being turned into stars. For those galaxies that had bright active galactic nuclei, there wasn't zero star formation, but it was about 65 solar masses per year, which indicates that as the supermassive black holes grow and get more luminous, eventually they shut off the star formation. And they don't turn it off, they just reduce it to a much lower rate. In the uh, center of galaxies, can the black holes be directly observed? Yes, yeah, so the black holes cannot be observed. They're far too small for us to see with any observational capabilities that we have now. So we have to infer their presence, and usually the inference is through gravitational interaction of matter around them. In the cases of these galaxies, they're so-called active galactic nuclei, active because they're undergoing accretion now and they shine brightly. So what is happening is that there are very large black holes, a million or a billion solar masses in the centers of the galaxies. And if there's sufficient material between the stars and around the black holes, then some of it can fall into the black hole. That's what accretion is. As it falls in, it orbits and gas rubs up against other gas and it gets heated and it emits radiation. So we can't see the black hole, but what we see is material spiraling around it. And it heats up so much in some cases that it emits x-rays. And so we observe x-rays from the active galactic nuclei in the regions right around the black holes. That's how we know that there are supermassive black holes in these galaxies. I guess it's probably difficult to observe the stars as well. And this is where the instrumentation comes in. Can you explain how you collected the and used the data? Absolutely. So star formation is also very difficult to observe. And the reason is that stars form as molecular clouds gravitationally collapse. So there are molecular clouds uh, throughout the Milky Way and a lot in the centers of galaxies, especially early in the universe. When the clouds collapse and form stars, 
The radiation that the stars emit is mostly optical and ultraviolet light, so visible and ultraviolet. But the light can't get out and be observed because the molecular clouds also have interstellar dust in them. And dust absorbs and scatters light from the stars. So star formation occurs embedded in molecular clouds and we can't directly see it. But we know it happens and the reason is that when the dust, the interstellar dust absorbs radiation, it heats up. And when it heats up, it glows. And the glowing is in the infrared and submillimeter part of the spectrum. So although we can't see the young stars themselves, in most cases, we see the glowing from the dust and we can infer that there's star formation occurring there. So the way we measured the amount of star formation occurring in the galaxies was to measure the amount of submillimeter radiation, reprocessed starlight, reprocessed by interstellar dust. And when you say that there's a correlation between the size of the black holes in the galaxy center and the star mass, do you mean the size of individual stars or do you mean the rate of star formation or the number of stars or all of the above? That's a very good question. So the correlation is actually between the mass of the supermassive black hole and the velocities of the stars in the centers of galaxies or their bulges, which is a probe of how much matter there is in the center of the galaxies. In the centers of galaxies, the mass is dominated by the stars. So what I mean when I say the mass in stars, I mean the number of stars. And there's a range of masses. Not all stars have the same mass, but it's basically the number of stars. So there's a correlation between the mass of the supermassive black hole and how many stars there are in the center of the galaxy. Can you explain the physical mechanism that has been proposed uh, to explain that correlation? Oh, that's a really hard question. Without some sort of negative feedback, it's very hard to explain. The correlation was observed over a decade ago, and multiple theoretical explanations have been put forth. At this point, most of them have been plausible because they don't make predictions that we can test observationally. We're just starting to get at that now. There are likely a couple different a few different possibilities. One is that when we have accretion into black holes, the material glows and we see x-rays, but there are also jets that shoot out. They send radiation out into interstellar and intergalactic space. And that gas can, coming out of the quasar can expel gas from the host galaxy where stars would form. And so it can prevent more star formation meaning when the black hole starts to form, it can shut off star formation. The more massive the black hole, the more effective that process is, and you could have a correlation between the mass of the black hole and the number of stars in the galaxy. There are still major questions to answer. For example, it seems that now we can show that when black holes get massive enough, they turn off or they slow down star formation. We need to see how tight that relationship is, but this doesn't explain at all how it happens. So now we have to observe many more objects and we have to refine our observations, observe galaxies in detail, compare those to theoretical predictions, and see if we can figure out the mechanism by which the supermassive black holes quench star formation. That was CU Boulder astronomer Jason Glenn talking with How on Earth's Jim Pullen about how black holes affect galaxies. That research was published in the May 10th issue of Nature. You can learn more by visiting casa.colorado.edu. That's C-A-S-A dot Colorado dot E-D-U. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. 
This week's show was produced by Beth Bartell and was engineered with by Jim Pullen. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music this week from The Beatles, Nina Simone, and The Turtles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Susan Moran.